The question we start with this morning is, how does what you know influence the way you live? So how does what you know influence the way you live? My uh, backyard neighbor has a German shepherd, and this German shepherd likes to let me know how tasty my legs look the moment I walk out my backyard, or my back porch. I can walk out in my yard, if you've ever been to my house, I, we have a pretty long backyard, and so it's not like I'm walking out right on top of this German shepherd. But I was talking to my neighbor, we've got a fence separating us, and now he's put a fence up, so we have two fences in between us at the time, but I, I was talking to him the other day, it's been, I guess, several months ago now, and he was telling me, he said, you know, Zoe, his, his name, nice, kind little name, um, Zoe just loves people, and it's remarkable, Zoe seems really aggressive, but if you just come over and just walk up and pet her, she just rolls right over and lets you rub her belly. And I, I was thinking, there is no way on this earth that I'm going to rub your dog's belly. It will rip my arm off. And uh, he's just convinced that this is the case. Well, we were redoing our fence this summer, and, and what we had to do to redo it was to take a panel off, rework it, and then put the panel back up. And so when we get to the section of the fence that goes along his yard, Zoe is on a, a running chain that gets right to my fence, but not any further. And so I asked him, I said, could you put Zoe up in her pen when we get to this part? He said, sure. And so he put Zoe up in her pen, and Sydney and I are back there, and we're working on the fence, and this dog is very intelligent. Zoe unlocks her own cage, and I am sitting there, and, and I'm bent over like this, working on the fence. And Zoe goes into stealth mode and decides this time she's not going to bark. And she comes flying at me, and, and I remember a glimpse of Sydney's face, but there was no sound from Sydney's voice. And her face was like this, like her eyes were really big. And by the time I heard a little chink of a chain, that dog was literally within an inch of my, my rear end. And I, I, I guarantee I jumped higher than I've ever jumped in my life, and that thing, you know, came after me. And I'm thinking, this is the dog. He says, if I just go over to it, it'll, it'll roll over and let me scratch his belly. He tried to take a chunk out of me. Zoe does not like me. So let me tell you how what I know influences the way I live. I don't walk in his backyard. I will not go in his backyard. I don't care what goes over there. It's gone. It's, it's gone. The things I know influence the way I live. And we need to ask that question on a much grander scale than the dog in our backyard. How do the things that we know about God, how do the things we know about Christ, about what He has done, specifically when we come to Romans 12, 1 through 2 today, how do the things that we know about what God has done in saving us, how does it influence the way we live? When we read all of Romans 1, 1 through 11, if we read these 11 chapters of Romans, how does this influence the way we live? See, Scripture knows nothing of, of the idea that, that we would know something about God and that we would experience salvation from God, but then yet fail to live for God. The, the one who does this has a name in Scripture. The one who knows about God and claims truths about God, but yet does not live for God. That name is a hypocrite, and it's, it's one that in Matthew th 23 Jesus rebuked and condemned and spoke out against. 
And so the, the call of Romans 12, 1 through 2 is simply to live in a way that is influenced by the things you know about who God is and what God has done in your life. See, we have to get beyond this cultural Christianity that, that tips its hat towards Jesus, yet refuses to live for Jesus. So let's read Romans 12, 1 and 2 today, a, a passage of Scripture I would say many of you are familiar with. Romans 12, 1 through 2, Paul looks in light of Romans chapter 1 through 11 and now responds to it in how we live. And he writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When we come to this passage, we come to kind of the, the third major theological shift in the book of Romans. There, there's three indicators, and they're all indicated by the word therefore. It's not the only three times that this word is used, but, but these are kind of three major shifts that we see in Romans that are indicated by this word. The first one is in Romans 5.1, where Paul says, therefore, since you have been justified by faith, it's that, that significance of salvation. And he follows that in in the next few chapters. Then he comes to Romans 8.1 where he says, Therefore, since there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes on in chapter 8 to discuss the, the reality that since there's no condemnation, we can trust him to grow us in Christ-likeness, that there's nothing that separates us from his love. And now in Romans 12, we come and we read, Therefore, our lives are to be consecrated to Christ. They're to be set apart. They're to be lived in worship to Him. So we see these theological shifts where He discusses salvation and then sanctification and now service. And so we come and look at what does it look like for us to serve? What does it look like to live our lives in worship to God? And so Paul begins in verse 1 by making an appeal for us to live our lives as that, as worship to the Lord. So he says, I appeal to you or I urge you to live your lives by the mercies of God, to live as a living sacrifice. Now, this is not some kind of weak request. He's not kind of going, oh, I just hope you'll do this. This comes with the authority of the fact that he is an apostle. It would be like you walking into work and, and your boss saying, hey, I, really, I really want you to get to work early in the morning. As compared to a coworker saying, I really think you should get work, to work early in the morning. Now, one of those carries more weight, doesn't it? One of those, when you hear your boss say, I really want you to get to work early in the morning, you don't hear, well, he wants me to, and it's not a big deal. When you hear that, you go, okay, I'll be at work a little early in the morning, right? Because he has authority. When, when, when Paul says, I appeal or I urge, it's coming with the authority of an apostle. Luther, in a sermon written on, or preached on Romans 12, 1-2, said, He who will not cheerfully respond to friendly admonition is no Christian. He, what he's saying there is that as Christians, as believers, when we come and we hear other brothers and sisters in Christ admonish us or encourage us in the Word in a way that conforms to the truths of Scripture and proclaims the truth of Scripture, when we hear that, we should take it into account. We should consider it. We, think, we should think upon it and we should respond to it. 
We know that one, we speak truth into one another's lives. And so Paul says, I appeal to you, I urge you, I want you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, what does he say? By what? By the mercies of God. By, by the mercies of God. He, it, it could easily be kind of the thematic banner for Romans 1, 1 through 11. I, I kind of pulled up the lyrics of one of the songs we just sang where uh, Hallelujah for the Cross says, All my shame was met with mercy. Now your mercy will be my song. That, that's essentially what Paul is saying here. He's saying in Romans 1 through 11, I told you that all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your sin, all of your condemnation has been met by the mercy of God. Now, mercy should be the song of your life. It should be the way that you live, that God's rich mercy on display towards sinners in the cross, on display towards those who deserve eternal death and punishment, yet now we stand as recipients of God's grace through faith, adopted as sons, and inheriting the rich treasures of Christ. What a, what a beautiful understanding and knowledge and realization of God's mercy. And so that's why Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in light of the mercies of God, in all that I've said, Romans 9 through 11, he talks about God's mercy on display as it is God who determines who he has mercy upon, not man. Ephesians 2, 4, we read, I think Matt may have referenced it in his prayer, Ephesians 2, 4 talks about that it was God who is rich in mercy and made us alive in Christ when we were dead in sin. Then we read in Titus 3, 5, that God saved us not based on our works but according to his own mercy God had mercy on us we talked about that a few weeks ago that that God has not given us what we deserve you and I all of us in here deserve death and eternal punishment we deserve the wrath of God but God has not given us that he has been merciful to us and so we rest in that so Paul's appeal is based on the mercies of God Again, in Luther's sermon on this text, he says, A teacher of the law enforces his restraints through threats and punishments. But a preacher of grace persuades and incites by calling attention to the goodness and the mercy of God. Listen, this is important because Paul's appeal, our appeal, the reason we live our lives for God is not based on threats from a divine fear monger. But it's based on the reminder that we are debtors to mercy alone. We don't walk around in fear of, of God unleashing His wrath on us. That's not why we live our lives for Christ. We live our lives for Christ because what He has done for us, because He's shown us mercy. We don't live in fear, we live in gratitude. And so the question, I would say, do you struggle in the living out of your faith? Then think upon the mercy of God. Do you struggle to apply the things of the Lord to your life to make hard decisions for the Lord and think upon the mercies of God do, do you find yourself weary from battling sin worn out tired thinking I just can't keep doing this and think upon the mercy of God do, do you find yourself apathetic about the mission of God on your life the calling of God to take the gospel forward and think upon the mercy of God. And those who need to know that same mercy. Need to experience that mercy. So Paul appeals on the basis of the mercies of God. Now what does he appeal for us to do? 
Look there in verse 1. He appeals for us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul draws on a reality of the ancient Near East that was very common. It's the, the reality of sacrifice in worship. It's a reality that the Jews knew well. That sacrifice was a consistent part of their routine. It was, it was something that was just common to their life as throughout the year atonement was made for their sins. It, sacrifices were something that were very common in cults and mystery religions, all sorts of sacrifices trying to appease the gods, trying to, to, to make yourself right with the gods you worship. So Jews and Greeks alike were very accustomed to this idea of sacrifice. It was something that made sense to them that Paul here, he does not call them or us to offer an animal sacrifice on behalf of, God, or, uh, on behalf of, of, of ourselves before God. He does not call us to that. He does not call us to bring an animal to the altar. What does he call us to? What kind of sacrifice does he call us to do? He calls us to make a, a living sacrifice, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. See, we no longer offer something to atone for sin. Why? Because of what Mike read in our pastoral scripture reading. We, we don't come and we don't atone for sin with something, with some kind of sacrifice. No, Jesus has already done that. Jesus has paid the price. He was the final sacrifice. We read in 1 Peter 2, 4-5, through 5, we read that as you come to Him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now listen, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This means that, that we no longer go to the altar to appease God for our sins. We, we don't come to the altar and, and give something to God to make atonement for sins. Our what and why for our sacrifice has changed. We no longer bring an animal. We bring ourselves. We no lo longer bring a sacrifice to, to make atonement, but we bring a sacrifice which is ourselves because of atonement, because of what Christ has done. We come in thanksgiving, not offering a sacrifice. We come in thanksgiving of His sacrifice, and we present ourselves to Him in worship for Christ who made the final payment for our sins and proclaimed, it is finished. It is finished. That is why we come before the Lord. Now, here's a, a pretty amazing thing to me. Is Christ not only became the final sacrifice, He not only paid the final price, but He has made us into a kingdom of priests. So the priests used to come before and present sacrifices. And Christ said, I am the final sacrifice. He is the great high priest. But the scriptures teach us that not only has he done that and been that, but he has made us a kingdom of priests. Listen, 1 Peter 2, 5 says, We are being built up to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What does he call us in 1 Peter 2, 9? Do you remember? We're called a royal priesthood. We skip ahead, Revelations 5, 9 through 10, we read, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, 
and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. Revelations 1, 5 through 6. We read the same thing. Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. So while we no longer go to the altar to present a blood sacrifice, we do indeed offer a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, as we present ourselves to God as a living act of worship. So this sacrifice we bring, it is not the destruction of life, but it is the giving of one's full energy and one's full life to God, offered to God for His glory and His use. We offer our lives to God. We love Him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength because we worship Him and we long to lift high the name of Christ. So the implication for us in this, if we're going to really offer our lives as lives of spiritual worship, living sacrifice, the implication is this. There is nothing off limits in my life for God's glory and use. Nothing. There's no corner of my life that I sit aside. There's no nook and cranny of my life that I hide and go, you know, this is for me and the rest of it's for God. I don't separate my life into what Francis Schaeffer described as a two-story house. I don't put my religion on one story and the rest of my life on another story. I don't separate it between sacred and secular. Everything is for the Lord. It is all for God. Truth is total truth. And so we have to reject this idea of a Sunday Christianity and a Monday through Saturday me-anity. We live to worship Christ. That means that our sports are not in a different category. The way you compete on the field, the way you run the course, is for God's glory. That means that the way you study, your homework, is not in a separate category. The integrity you show when you do your work the honesty, the willingness to take a bad grade above cheating. It is for the glory of God. That means that your job is not in a separate category. That means you think about how do I use my job to bring God glory? How do I honor God at work? How do I leverage these opportunities to tell people about Christ? How do I speak up for Christ? How do I carry out my job with integrity and godliness and truth, even when it hurts, even when it doesn't mean advancement? It means that my hobbies are not off limits. The things that I spend my free time doing should still honor the Lord. I don't set those aside and go, you know what, these are times where I just step away and I don't worry about God. I don't worry about how He's honored. I don't worry about stewardship, but I just pour everything into it. No, hobbies are not off limits. It means my relationships are not off limits. Those that I surround myself with, the friends that I let speak into my life, the ones that I date, the ones that I would marry, all of these are not off limits. They are within the bounds of living life for God's glory. So the way I carry out my friendships, the way I carry out my marriage, the way I carry out my role as a father, as a friend, as a pastor, should all bring glory to God. It means that your social media account is not out of the bounds of living for God's glory. That the things that you type, the photos you post, the things you like are within God's glory. You, you realize that, right? Here's a side note. 
the things you like, you guys that use social media, get relayed to other people. And so we watch and we see the things that you like. And so the things you like, if it's ungodly, it flashes up on my feed and your other friend's feed and your mom's feed and your dad's feed and your teacher's feed and your teenager's feed, whatever it is. The things that we like, the things that we post, the things that we forward, the things that we repeat on social media, the things that we respond to, the way that we respond to those things are not off-limits to God's glory. The way we surf the internet is not off limits to God's glory. The websites you click on, the videos you watch, the images you allow to flood your mind are not off limits to God's glory. Why do you go to the sites you go to? Is it because you're captivated by the holiness of God and you want to live a life of worship? Or are you captivated by self-gratification? Are you captivated by sin and lust and desire? None of those things are off-limits for God's glory. Our entertainment is not off-limits to God's glory. The movies we watch, the songs we listen to, the books we read, the magazines we flip through, the YouTube videos we laugh at. None of those are off limits to God's glory. We watch them, and we should watch them, in a way that is worshipful to our King. We cannot separate something. We live our lives to worship God. We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, not as instruments of depravity and sin and lust, but as instruments of righteousness. We do all for the glory of God. It's what we meditated on, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So all that we are, all that we have is a living sacrifice to God. We are to be that living sacrifice, one that is holy and acceptable to God. That just simply means that we are to be such that we are consecrated, we are set apart for God's purposes. We want to honor God. Our goal is not to make someone else happy. So my goal in my life and the way I live my life is not to make you happy. Your goal is not to make me happy. My goal is not to make Steph happy or my kids happy or my friends happy or whoever I look up to happy. Yours isn't either. Your goal in life is to exalt the name of Christ. It's to set yourself apart for worship for Him. To be a living sacrifice to God. That's the goal of our lives, that we would live in gratitude of His great mercy. Now, before we move on to verse 2, I just want to point this out to you. Romans 12.1 is really the, the foundation or the basis for Christian ethics and morality. It is, it's kind of the bedrock of why we do what we do. It is the foundation for our ethics. Why? Because if, if this is how we live our life, if I, if I approach life and go, I want to live my life in a way that my body, my life, myself, all that I am, that's what he's talking about. He's not just talking about your physical body. He's talking about all of yourself, all that you are, is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Then that's how I'm going to approach things, and that's going to inform the questions I ask. So I'm not going to approach things and ask this question. I'm not going to say, is there anything wrong with that? See, that question 
is, is a tricky question because on the surface, it, it sounds like a pretty good question. But underneath the surface, that question is a question that says, is there anything wrong with that? Because I, what I want to do is I want to get as close to this as I can without actually committing sin. So that, that question can lead us in some, some wrong ways, some wrong paths. Because the intent of the question. Romans 12.1 informs the way we do things and, and what we believe and, and how we act, our morality, our ethics. It informs it by giving us a better question. A, a question that would say, how can I most glorify God in this instance? Where I'm not trying to just sit back and go, okay, is there anything wrong? Anything wrong? I don't know. Well, I'm just trying to make black and white decisions. Because you know, as well as I do, that life has a lot of difficult gray area decisions, doesn't it? And so in those moments, if we would ask a better question, the question that Romans 12 would lead us to ask is, how can I most glorify God in this instance? How can I worship God in this particular situation, in this decision? How can I most glorify God? That's going to lead us on a little different trajectory a lot of times than, well, is there anything wrong with this? Well, I can't find anything wrong with this, so I'm just going to do it. Although if we ask, is this the, how can I most glorify God in this? Well, I actually, I shouldn't do this. I should probably do this because it will glorify God in the way that others respond and others see it. This passage informs our ethic, our morality. Because we long to live for God and to worship Him in the things we do. Now, verse 2 kind of answers this question. How? How do we give ourselves to God in worship? The first part is what? Do not conform to the world. The second part is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have to recognize this. Here's what, this is what Paul's getting at. Is we have to recognize that when God saved us, He did not snatch us out of the world. He, he didn't just remove us and go, okay, I want you, I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you over here and you form this holy huddle, this holy bubble where you never encounter the world. That's not what he did. In fact, it's really the exact opposite. He saves us and makes us what? The salt and the light of the earth. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. We are the salt. We are the light. Now, neither the salt nor the light conform to the world around them, do they? They both influence, they both impact their environment. They don't just conform to the things around them. That's why in John 17, 14 and 19, Jesus does not pray that we would be taken out of the world. No, he prays two things. He prays, one, that we would be protected from Satan, from the evil one, the adversary. And two, he prays that we would be sanctified by the truth. His word is truth. John 17, 17. That's his prayer. It is not that, that we're removed from the world, but that we be protected from Satan, we be sanctified by the word. We are the salt. We are the light. We're called to live lives of worship. But this will not happen by conforming to the world. It just won't. So Christian, you have a decision to make. You have a, a really important decision to make today. You, you have the decision of will you do what is easy and look like the world around you? Or will you pursue Christ and swim upstream? Will you do what's easy and just drift around like the world? Or will you pursue Christ and head upstream? A, a couple summers ago, we went kayaking on Lake Michigan. 
I, I'd never been to Lake Michigan, but this is a vast body of water. It looks like you're on the ocean. It's just huge. And we, we kayaked one direction and got to a beach, and we spent time on the beach, and then we turned around and we kayaked back, and I, I think it was four or five miles that we kayaked along the, the coast of Lake Michigan. And as you would round bends, if any of you have been on the Great Lakes, you know that the wind can get pretty strong on the Great Lakes. And so coming back, the, the wind was very strong, and not only was the wind strong, but I found out the current, I think, was coming against us as well. And so going was pretty easy. A couple paddle strokes and you would go, or, or you could even just kind of sit and get carried along. But when we came back, we had to paddle, and we had to paddle hard, and you're hitting the waves, and you're coming back, and you're having to go against the wind, against the current. Listen, the life of the Christian is one in which you're called to live against the winds of the world, against the current of culture. We're called to paddle upstream. And the lie that we often fall to is this, is that I can just drift. I can just kind of go through life. And that's not going to work. Just like that would not have worked for me kayaking on Lake Michigan. If I want to get back and get back that four to five miles to get back to where we needed to get to, to get to the trucks and go home and eat supper that night, it wasn't happened by drifting. Drifting would have put me long away from where I needed to be. But we think sometimes we can just drift through life. And we can just kind of go and go with the flow and it's no big deal, but it is a big deal. Drifting takes you where you do not want to be. You and I have a decision to make. Will we follow the winds and the currents of the world and culture? Or will we pursue Christ? Will we conform to the world or will we conform to the image of Christ? Do not conform to the world, Paul says. Do not just drift and look like the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, how, how, do we, how do we do this? What does it look like? What does it look like? I think before we ask that question, we have to realize something. We have to realize that sin has affected, affected our thinking. Sin has had an impact on our thinking. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, listen, he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Sin has an effect on our thinking. Listen to uh, what he says in Ephesians 4. You can just write this down, 4, 17 to 24. But listen to the, the importance of your mind. He says, Now this I say and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Why? They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Now the contrary, and what he goes on to write is he, he refers to things that this is not the way you learned Christ, this is not the way you were taught in Him, this is not the truth of Christ that you know, and He calls them to be renewed in the spirit of their minds. See, our minds have been affected by the fall. This is something known as the noetic effect of sin. Not Noah, like the ark, but the noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C, the noetic effect of sin. That it affects the way we think, it affects our ideas, our understanding. Sin has an impact on our mind. 
we would be remiss to think that sin has affected everything else but our thinking. Why would we even, why would we think that? Well, because sin has affected our thinking, right? The fall has an effect on our minds. And we need God to come and to renew our minds. We need God to do a great work in our minds and our understanding to make us aware and to understand and to remove the veil Paul talked about that we might see and behold Christ in all His glory and His mercy displayed on the cross. We need that. But when we think about this, it doesn't start with this. It doesn't start with our mind. Paul has spent... 11 chapters trying to pound it into our thick skulls that it doesn't start with our mind. It starts with our heart. The beginning point is not just renewal of my mind, being transformed by the renewal of my mind. No, the beginning point is the mercy of God. The beginning point is regeneration. That's the first step that God would make dead hearts alive in Christ through faith. That's, that's, what, he, that's what he said there in Ephesians. He said the problem in Ephesians 4.18 is that, that those outside of Christ, they're darkened and they're understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Why? Due to their hardness of heart. Due to their hardness of heart. Mark 7.21, Jesus says that out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Our heart is what has to be influenced first. Our heart is where it starts. And so the question is not, hey, let's just see if we can all renew our minds. The question first has to be, have you confessed Christ? Has God come in and changed your life? Has He brought life to your dead heart? Has He made you alive in Christ? Has there been a heart change? If there is not a heart change, there will not be a mind change and there will not be a life change. If you want life change, it starts with heart change. That's the bottom line. That's what Romans 1 through 11 talks about, that salvation is through Christ alone. It's through Christ alone, by His grace, through faith. So would you turn to Christ? Would you call out to Christ today? If you're an unbeliever, you've never confessed Christ. Jesus has told us that we are to repent and believe in Him. We are to follow Him. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And so that's the question. Where is your heart? That's the first step. That's where you've got to begin. If you are experiencing the problems of life, and we all do, if you're experiencing the problems of life and you're just seeking to change your mindset by going and getting all this psychological help and 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 garbage then listen it's not going to help why because it doesn't deal with the heart i can go and get all kind of tips on how to think i can get all kind of tips on different ideas and strategies for life but it's like just snipping a weed by doing that we've got to begin with a heart we need someone to uproot our sinful hearts Christ does that. Jesus is the one who changes lives and He changes hearts. He brings life to dead hearts. And when that heart change comes, that's when we renew our minds 
And that's when life change comes. The result there in verse 2, the end, the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you want to live a life that glorifies God, that is an act of worship? Then stop conforming to the world and renew your mind in Christ. Do you want to discern the will of God? Do you want to be able to live in a way that you know God's will for your life? Then renew your mind in Christ and stop conforming to the world. Let me just leave you with a few kind of practical ways, suggestions to renew your mind. Those of you who are believers. If you're an unbeliever, you need to just, you can write these down, but you need to step back and go, okay, am I a follower of Christ? I need God to change my life. And once he's changed my life and brought life to my dead heart, then I will think about renewing my mind. But believers, those who have been converted, those who have new life in Christ, what can we do to renew our minds? Here's the first thing, first thing I would say, is to guard what comes in. Just guard what comes in. Guard the entertainment, the reading, the things you look at. Protect what comes in. Be discerning. Put a filter on your eyes and your ears. Guard what comes in. Here's the second thing. Is fill your mind with the things of God. Fill your mind with the things of God. Study Scripture. Again, this is, we've talked about this before. Why is this always the answer? Well, because it's God's Word. And God's Word is the truth, and the truth sanctifies you. If I want to know God, I need to know about Him, and I need to draw near to Him. And this is the way He's revealed Himself to us, is the Scriptures. So study the Scriptures. Fill your mind with the things of God. Listen to God-honoring, God-exalting music. Music gets in your mind. Jeff and I talked about this this past Tuesday on the the sermon follow-up. How none of you are going to leave singing music my sermon if you do I'm sorry but many of you will leave singing the songs we sing and you'll listen to those on the way home or you may have a playlist of songs and and you go to work and you get that song in your head and you sing it over and over and other people are like would you please be quiet you're making me sing it too listen to music that stirs your mind to think about the Lord here's the third thing read good books This is not a promo for the book note area out there. But we need to read good books. We we need to read books that that don't just lead us to escape and read a good story. I'm all for fiction. Go and read your fiction. There's nothing wrong with it as long as it's not sinful, sin-filled fiction. But read books that are going to stir you up, that are going to stimulate you, that are going to cause you to stop and think. It's okay to read a book that you get like two pages and go, wow, I don't know if I can read anymore today. That's a lot to think about. That's okay. Read a book that's going to cause you to think. It's going to challenge you. Books like that are books that are written by saints who have gone before and who have learned things and studied things that we need to learn from. So read good books that are going to stimulate you to follow Christ. Here's another suggestion. Have stimulating conversations with mature believers. Engage in stimulating conversations with mature believers. Look around the room. How how many people in here have walked with the Lord longer than you have? There, There are people in this room that have probably walked with the Lord. Well, I know there are. That have walked with the Lord longer than I've been alive. It's good for me to sit and engage in conversation with you. 
Because you've had to live your life through things that I have not experienced. You've had to pursue Christ in days I can't imagine. You've wrestled through questions that I haven't had to wrestle through yet. And it's good and stimulating for me to have to think through those things. You need to surround yourself with people who not just are older than you, but people who, who are just mature. They're, they're longing. They're growing in the Lord. Get around those people. Spend time with them. Go to coffee. Grab lunch. Grab breakfast. Get around them and hear from them. Learn from them. And then finally, I would say be intentional. Be intentional. How do you approach school? The classes you're in, the people on your ball team. How do you approach work? Those in the cubicle beside you or the desk around the corner? Those you drive a nail beside? Those you lay the line beside? How do you interact with your neighbors? Be intentional in those relationships. Be intentional in the things you take part in. Be intentional in the things you read, the things you listen to. Maybe that's just setting aside, you know, I'm going to listen to one podcast a week that's going to spur me on in my faith. Maybe that's simply saying, you know what, I'm not a reader, but I'm going to find one good book. I'm going to ask one of the pastors and say, hey, I just need a book on this. Would you help me? And I'm going to try to read that this year before January 1st. I've got four months. Is that right? Four months? So in the next four months, I'm going to try to get through one book of 125 pages. Praise the Lord. Or maybe it's being intentional about how you walk through the Word or being intentionally engaging in a, a relationship with someone who could mentor you and disciple you and challenge you in your faith. I don't know. But be intentional in your walk with the Lord. Let us not conform to the world, but let us intentionally and faithfully transform ourselves by the renewing of our minds. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We're thankful for your mercy. And God, in light of your mercy, God, we long to live our lives as living sacrifices of worship. God, we know we do not come to offer atonement for our sins. God, you have done that in Christ. God, we simply come in thanksgiving for what you've already done. And so, God, I pray that in view of that, we would long to live for you. God, guard our minds. Renew our minds by your truth, by your grace, and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.